From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. When you look at the majority of media coverage, they're always quoting officials from uh, Israeli institutions, from the Israeli military, from the American State Department, and all these quotes go often unchallenged. Now that's not journalism, that's PR. Palestinian-American journalist and media analyst Laura Albast joins us to talk about the media coverage of the recent developments in Palestine, including the deadly raid on the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. But first, we bring you a conversation with prominent Israeli historian Ilan Pape about the implications of the recent change of administration in Israel for both Palestine and entire region. Stay with us. With the arrival of notorious fascists in prominent positions of power in Israel, Western news media everywhere seem surprised at the extreme tenor of Israel's government since Benjamin Netanyahu returned to power for the umpteenth time as if racism, colonialism, and apartheid were somehow alien to the very DNA and mission of the so-called Jewish state. This week, Khalil Bendib speaks with prominent Israeli historian, scholar, Professor Ilan Pape, about the implications of the recent change of administration in Israel for both Palestine and the entire region. Ilan, a lot of things have happened since we last talked two years ago, and not all for the better, unfortunately. The return of Netanyahu to power has upped the ante in occupied Palestine with a cabinet replete with openly racist far-right ministers in critical posts of power overtly intent on annexing the West Bank and controlling Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem, taking also harsher measures against Palestinians. This further shift to the right seems to be a growing source of discomfort for some of Israel's supporters in the West. Do you see a growing trend of disaffected supporters and the diaspora, or will the majority of them simply keep adapting whatever Israel does? Khalil, again, it's a pleasure to be in your program. You ask a very good question, which is not very easy to answer, and actually only time will answer it, because what we have here is what I would call a serious blow to the image of fantasy Israel. Fantasy Israel is the way that uh, liberals in the West and liberals inside Israel, Jewish communities around the world, people who were critical of Israeli policies, but all the time harbored a hope that maybe things would change. I mean, this was Fantasy Israel, namely, yes, it is an ethnic cleansing. It's a state that operates ethnic cleansing. It colonizes, it oppresses, it dispossesses but maybe it's temporary and it is balanced by its democratic nature and freedoms and so on and so forth. This election and the actions declared or intended and the actions already taken by this government is a blow to this fantasy Israel. It would be very difficult for people who resonated with themselves that despite all the bad things that they know are happening in Israel, that they may find a pretext to continue and support it and say that the problem is not the ideology of the state 
or the very project of, of Zionism, but certain policies. I think that becomes a very, very impossible analysis and justification. So I, to answer more correctly your question, there is a potential here for expanding uh, the already existing support in the uh, civil society around the world for the Palestinian cause, to extend the support for the BDS, to extend the support for the framing of Israel as an apartheid state. Again, like we always discussed in the past, will this be enough to change policies from above by the American administration, by governments of the West? Will it lead Arab countries that signed normalization agreements with Israel to change the views? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, and I'm waiting anxiously to see whether this will indeed happen. So far, there are no indications that from above, that is, policies by governments and rulers, are affected to the point that they are fundamentally changing their attitude towards Israel. Yes, I was more referring to general public opinion, but you're right, it's a it's speculation, it's difficult. Under Joe Biden, lip service to the so-called two-state solution has made the timid comeback to the White House. But at the same time, Biden has failed to cancel the enormous concessions made by Trump, which all previous U.S. administration had refused to make. That is, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, pulling out from the Iran nuclear accords, and also recognizing Morocco's sovereignty in the Western Sahara, not canceling a Trump administration decision to legitimize Israeli settlements in the West Bank, not reopening the U.S. consulate to the Palestinian Jerusalem and the Palestinian mission in Washington, both of which were closed under Trump. Even when Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, U.S. citizen, mind you, was murdered in cold blood on camera, Biden refused to take a stand. And yet, some Democrats have been putting pressure on him to rebalance U.S. policy to at least the status quo ante that prevailed under Barack Obama. Why, in your opinion, has Joe Biden so faithfully kept to Trump's extreme hardline instead? Even when Trump was at the peak of his power, we always said that the difference between him and previous administrations, whether they were Democratic or Republican, was the style and not the essence. Yes, the style was different and the symbolic gestures were more crude of the previous administration, but in essence, Trump did not deviate from the basic and most important feature of American policy. And that feature is that while we might talk the talk when it comes to Israel, we might condemn certain actions, we might express our dissatisfaction, we will never take any action on the basis of these condemnations. And therefore, this is not surprising. This The style has changed. Biden's style includes, as you said yourself, the discourse of two states. Lincoln, who just came to Israel and Palestine, was talking about human rights that Israel should adhere to, and so on. We know that these words cannot be anchored in actions on the ground because the lobby, the Israeli lobby, is still very, very powerful on Capitol Hill, and that's where these policies are eventually being made. The other side of the coin, we should not ignore it, and this has nothing to do with Biden. The younger the generation of new Democrats 
and the more younger members are coming to the House, and hopefully eventually also to the Senate, the more we have a group, almost a caucus, of young Democrats who are very clear in their language about Israel and about Palestine. And although they are still a very insignificant minority within the party, nonetheless, they are part of a process that seems to grow and change uh, within the rank of file, if one can call it, of the Democratic Party. There's no equivalent to this in the Republican Party. And therefore, as always, we know that the process of change is a long-term process, and it would not come at the time of the Biden administration. Unfortunately, not probably the one after it, whoever will be in the White House. But there is a grassroots below the surface, a process that I believe would mature eventually in a way that would cause a change also in American policy. But this demands a lot of work, a lot of advocacy, and more than anything else, recognition that we are talking here about a long-term process and not something that awaits for us around the corner. The old oxymoron of Israel as a, quote, Jewish democracy seems to be finally resolving itself now with the abandonment of at least some of the pretense of democracy, just as became obvious in the U.S. and much of Europe for a large segment of the population, or at least the majority of whites in the U.S., if the choice is between democracy and ethnic supremacy, the notion of democracy becomes expendable. As Israel keeps drifting farther and farther to the right, is this a natural evolution for a settler colonial state like Israel, or does it reflect a larger trend worldwide? Even the, the old fig leaf of uh, pinkwashing, as, as it's called, this, this pretense of not being completely what it is, which is a harsh discriminatory regime. Some resistance now to this agenda, this farther right extremist right-wing agenda among at least a segment of American Jews is showing its signs of of growing. There seems to be some grumbling among many, many supporters of Israel in this country. Since U.S. support for Israel is an existential thing for it, do you see hope, any hope in, in this growing trend? Or is that just an optical illusion, as you were seem to be saying earlier? Well, first of all, you actually asked two questions here. Yes. One is about is this a logical culmination of a settler colonial project, the election of this extreme right government, and probably the destruction of what remained from the charade of uh, democracy in Israel. So yes, I think that's inevitable. And there was never in history, and there will be never in the future, an oxymoron kind of regime that is a liberal settler colonialism or progressive settler colonialism or democratic settler colonialism, for that matter. That's the the fantasy Israel I was talking about before, uh, that is particularly Jewish communities around the world were kind of adhering to, hoping that, yes, you can be a progressive occupier and a liberal colonizer and a democratic ethnic cleanser. And I think the fact that these kinds of ideas were not valid was exposed in full after the Israeli elections in November 2022. So yes, this is a culmination, and it is the internal logic and DNA of any settler colonial project. You either dismantle them, 
or they continue. There is nothing in between. There is no settler colonialism that gets softer or one that could be accommodated by the natives or the indigenous populations. As for your other point of view, I think there are different contradicting global movements, not just in the United States, not just among Jewish societies, but also in the West in general and even beyond the West. I'm thinking about places such as India. There is a rise of right-wing populism. And populism is very important because populism sometimes can emanate from a real will, which, uh, as was the case of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, where you, it comes from a real wish to, to rectify social injustice. But this kind of populism is replaced now by populism of the right wing, racist, extreme, as we see in Hungary, in Poland, in Israel, in India. And, and what it has in common, that it is Islamophobic, in fact, it's also anti-Semitic to my mind, and it is able to remain within the strategic alliance with the United States. And against this, there is the different trends in places such as Brazil, in Norway, also in some other countries where the governments are trying to reflect more honestly the agendas of their societies. Within this clash between populism and genuine politics, I would call it, Palestine epitomizes or occupies a very important place. It's not surprising that when you have political movements, either from below or already adopted by governments from above, that support social justice, support ecological justice, are dealing with poverty, arms deals, uh, crime, in a genuine way, there is also a great support for the Palestinian liberation movement. And when you have political regimes that ignore all these problems and try to replace them by cheap populist, nationalist, or fanatic religious extremism, there is a great support for Israel. It's not an accident, or it's not incidental. It's very clear to me that these things are going together, and therefore, and we talked about it before, the intersectional international movement for social justice, ecological justice, against the arms industry, against the uh, multinational cooperation, is the intersectional national movement, international movement that would also sustain the international support for the liberation of Palestine. Palestine cannot liberate itself. It needs this kind of support and cannot rely either on the Arab regimes, unfortunately not even on the Muslim states, and definitely not on the West. So this is this is where I think we are at at this particular moment. This moment in Israel and slash the U.S. post-Trump are during, we may still be unfortunately during the Trump era. It reminds me of Algeria in 1959 when the settlers, French settlers, they attempted to overthrow the Republican France because they were at this fork in the road where they clearly saw how democracy was a problem for them and they just decided they would rather have continued colonial state than any resistance from De Gaulle, from metropolitan France. And the settlers in Algeria during World War II were even pro-Vichy as opposed to mm-hmm. most French, because it was clear to them that fascism was more copacetic with colonialism than right. a so-called democracy or any measure of liberal democracy. 
So it takes me back to my very <laughs> beginnings when this was all happening, when there was this clash and it's still going on. 50, 60 years later, we're still having this major clash between these two worlds, the colonial world, and perhaps something better to come. I um, think, by the way, Khalil, if I yes. may interrupt, I think it's not just the colonial and non-colonial. I think there's also a clash between the agenda of what is important in life and for societies in the global south and in the global north. Ukraine is, is an incredible example for this. The West, uh, especially NATO, are using Ukraine as means of, of fighting a war against Russia. Russia is doing its bit in it. Uh, this is an agenda that if you listen to the CNN, the BBC, even Al Jazeera in English, you would think that this is the most important thing that's happening now in the world. You won't hear anything about famine in East, in East Africa. You won't hear anything about the democratic movement in, in Pakistan. You won't hear anything about Palestine. You won't hear anything about indigenous movements in America and uh, social movements in the United States and the First Nations in Canada. It's not surprising. I mean, that there is a, a Western agenda that, despite the, de the physical decolonization, has not yet decolonized itself from its basic attitudes towards non-Western society, towards the global South. And in it, Palestine is located very strongly in that uh, wrong agenda in the eyes of the West, the irrelevant agenda. It's incredible to read op-eds. Just the other day I read it in the New York Times and the Washington Post that the world is not interested anymore in Palestine because it's not soluble. And then we had the Mondial in Qatar. And we saw the sentiment uh, of every Arab in the world towards the issue of Palestine. It's a question who determines what is the agenda, what are the priorities of the agenda. And the post-colonial West needs still to be further decolonized, definitely in terms of the way it produces knowledge, it produces memory. You mentioned Algeria. I think you do know that there was a demonstration against the settlers in Algeria in a metro station in Paris called on Nation, on Nation. And, and the French police killed 11, I think, uh, of the demonstrators. You can go to that metro station, Khalil. Yes. There is no snake. There's no mentioning. I asked people, I was there around, do you know what happened? You know, young people, young French people. I asked them, do you know what happened in this metro station? They have no idea. It's not taught in schools. It is not talked by this, you know, the French love to talk about books and history. It takes them 55 hours to discuss a book that they see themselves as a very cultured and civilized nation, but they don't even begin to touch, as Belgium doesn't begin to touch its past. So decolonization is probably the most important. You're right, but, but you, you pointed to the colonial thing, but I think it's it's... We have to understand it's time to decolonize the West as much as it's time to continue the decolonization of the world that was colonized. I'm so glad you brought up uh, the Ukraine because that was actually my next question. I had the same reaction that you did. I saw this as a much broader fight by the West and the former colonial empires. With the US and NATO so dead set on stopping Russia and the Ukraine and exerting tremendous pressure on all of its friends and allies to follow suit 
you would think Israel would promptly fall into line, but it hasn't. Of all the Western allies, Israel seems to be the one most reluctant to side with the U.S., and it has so far walked a fine line trying not to antagonize Putin while at the same time taking advantage of the war by welcoming tens of thousands of Ukrainians and probably some Russians too under the Zionist doctrine of return, quote unquote. Almost a year into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where does Israel stand vis-a-vis Russia and the Ukraine, which have been one and same country until very recently in terms of their support for and close relationship with Israel. Historically, it has been the case. A number of prominent billionaires, both from Russia and the Ukraine, (laughs) happen to have Israeli citizenship and have been equally unconditional in their support of the Jewish state. Yes, it's true that Israel, official Israel, is navigating carefully between not intimidating Russia on the one hand and not intimidating the United States on the other. Although it it doesn't do a very good job because I think everyone is is angry with them. Zelensky in in Kiev, Putin in in Moscow, and Biden in Washington. So they haven't found the formula that would enable them to kind of solve this paradoxical situation they find themselves in. But so far, what really matters to them, they want to continue to bomb freely in Syria, and they want uh, the Russian Air Force that still has some impact on the airspace around Syria not to interfere with their assaults. And so far, this continues without interruption. The hope of Israel is that their particular role in it would be diminished in time in a sense that this would not be the topic of the day. The topic of the day would be, does Germany provide tanks to the Ukraine? Does Europe increase the sanctions over over Russia and so on? But to be honest, first, I thought that would create a huge problem for Israel. I think that they are going to get away with it without making any clear decisions and remain quite vague about their moral position, so to speak, on this war. Yeah, you mentioned Germany, which ironically was shamed, of course, historically for what it did to the Jews of Europe, but now is being shamed for being not belligerent enough. (laughs) Russia. So it's very ironic. (laughs) Damned if they do and damned if they don't. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So the fervor of pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russian propaganda in the Western media since Putin's invasion last February, to me has been reminiscent of the uncritical press that Israel has always received in the West. It's given a pass to NATO's expansionist agenda, just as it has always justified Israel's expansionism. Given Israel's historical quasi-umbilical closeness to both Russia and the Ukraine, Are Israeli media any more balanced than what we see here in America? No, I think that the attempt to not to irritate Russia is not shared by the Israeli media. Israeli media is following the CNN, the BBC, the Western media. It doesn't have its own agenda on Ukraine. It just parrots the American and European agenda, which is very hypocritical, as we know. It doesn't at all tell 
the historical context of the war. He doesn't talk about the rise of uh, fascism, uh, even neo-Nazism in the Ukraine that created this nationalistic and very intransigent position by the Ukraine. He doesn't at all include the fact that Russia was always warning against arming countries that are its neighbors and turning them into the NATO bastions uh, in the front. All this is not mentioned at all, of course. This is all forgotten. On top of it, of course, there is this whole hypocrisy that whatever is considered to be a Russian war crime is happening on a daily basis in Palestine, but is never reported or framed in in a similar way. So so I'm much more worried, not worried, and I I stopped being worried, worrying about Israeli media. I'm much more kind of aware of the fact that the Israeli description of what, what goes on in the Ukraine could easily be a description of what Israel is doing in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But of course, this is not at all pointed to by those who write these reports or analyses or op-eds. And um, it is this uh, double talk, this hypocrisy that in the past provided Israel immunity for its impunity and uh, the Ukraine situation just uh, emphasized this hypocrisy and double talk. This week, just two days ago, Israel resumed its provocations against Iran, bombing a defense compound in the heart of Iran. This at a time when the 2015 nuclear agreement is quite moribund. What is Israel's end game in Iran? Is it dragging the U.S. into an all-out war? Or is it simply to stop Iran's nuclear program once and for all? Or is there another agenda behind this? I think there are several agendas, and it depends who you're talking about in Israel, because uh, eventually the policy towards Iran is a kind of a mixed balance between what the army wants, what the Mossad wants, and what the politicians who happen to be at the top in a given moment uh, want. So I think the army is probably concerned, genuinely concerned, I would say, about the Iranians' nuclear capacity. Although if you talk to generals in Israel off the record, they will tell you that there's no way that Iran would ever use this nuclear weapon against Israel because nobody can use nuclear weapons against anyone in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's suicidal. You don't do this, right? right. So this is not a matter. This is not the nuclear weapons that can be activated by anyone, by the way, including Israel. It doesn't matter. But, you know, there is an inertia of military thinking. I think that um, the Israeli Secret Service uh, and so on is much more interested in the tactics than the strategy. It had quite a bad decade or two in terms of its operations. You remember, it, it used to have this, which was reflected in Hollywood, it used to have this aura of the best and the most effective and the bravest kind of secret service, then it has quite one fiasco after the other. So I think they're trying to rehabilitate by showing how effective they can be within Iran. And the politicians, to my mind, this is an attempt to divert the world's attention from what Israel is doing in Palestine. Because the Israelis are a bit like the Dutch boy who was trying to stop the dam from exploding. Do you remember this uh, 
yeah. story about the, the yeah. dirty boy. The they, they, they put fingers but every time there's a new hole. Now, <laughs> the, the last hole mm-hmm. is the fact that the most respectful international human rights organization and the most respectful human rights organization in Israel joined forces in framing Israel as an apartheid state. You need to divert. They are worried that eventually, although these, and we talked about it, these are civil societies framing, they have not influenced policies of the EU or the United States so far, but they're not sure that this will always be like this. And, and they don't want the Palestine issue to be discussed in the International Court of Justice. They don't want it to be discussed in the United Nations. They are, you know, imposing all kinds of collective punishment on the PA that anyway is the most fragile leadership in the world in order that it would stop going to the International Court of Justice or the United Nations because they really are not sure that they are controlling. They like to control things, but they, it's like a snowball and they don't know how to stop it. They had similar sense when the BDS became a popular global uh, phenomenon. Yes. They, they suddenly realized that military force is not useful here. What do you do? So you call everyone an anti-Semite, you call everyone a Holocaust denier. They're trying to do everything they can, but they cannot use the similar method that they use on the ground, which is uh, force, in order to sustain a certain reality. So they are they are in a serious problem here, I think. Also in their own eyes, in their own eyes. And I think Iran is a deflection. They hope it would be a deflection, much more than anything else. The first thing that the President of uh, Israel brought up two days ago in the commemoration of the Holocaust, he was in Europe somewhere, was this thing of Iran. I mean, it seemed like such yeah. a priority. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, problem is, the problem is that sometimes Israel in the past, in order to deflect attention, went to war. So I'm not ruling out a major Israeli military operation in Iran as well. But again, I'm, I doubt very much that this is anything to do with the ability to stop Iran from possessing nuclear powers uh, or from a genuine fear that Iran can really use atomic bombs in any way or capacity. The reason I ask whether there are any further agendas that are not discussed usually, and perhaps it may be my paranoia as a former colonial subject, Is there any inkling among politicians, among people in power in Israel of possibly dividing Iran along ethnic lines like has happened in other parts of the Middle East, like has happened Mm -hmm. in Iraq, for example? Is there an attempt or a dream to to fragment such a a large potential? No, no, I, I, I think you give them too much credit. No, no, no. (laughs) I I don't think. (laughs) You know, there's a certain psychology when you produce fear or when you produce artificially a threat. If you do it for a long enough time, you begin to believe in it yourself. And I think that's what's happening in part in the case of Israel. I remember my late mother, God rest her soul, she told me she was not sleeping well at night. She lived in Jerusalem. And asked why. Said because you know because of the Iranian threat, <laughs> she couldn't <laughs> yeah. sleep at night because yeah. of the Iranian threat. So I said to her, my dear uh, mother-in-law, I can assure you, as an expert on the Middle East, if you want, don't sleep 
because of other problems. If this is the reason you're not sleeping, <laughs> please sleep well. There is no Iranian threat. And nobody in Iran is thinking about you. And so <laughs> try, try and have a peaceful night. <laughs> this is the yeah. same fear that's shared by uh, racist police officers in this country who, who shoot unarmed black men exactly. who are running away from them with their back turned to them. And usually oh. the leitmotif, the, the, the word is, is fear, that we, we were in fear of our lives. So you have to yeah. take fear with a grain of salt. Especially in the West. Especially in the West. Even the West, the Western academia hasn't done yet its job properly. They're very good in analyzing the manipulation of uh, fear in dictatorship in non-democratic countries. They're very, very careful because they're not sure about their own role in it, on deconstructing and unpacking the way fear is produced by the West through them, through the academia, through the media, through the film industry, through the television series and so on, the popular media. And I think this is why we don't have, while we have a lot of great projects in academia, this is one I was looking in vain for any serious analysis in the way that in the West and in the United States now, not in the days of the Cold War, that's easy to show, that nowadays, and especially since 2001, there is a whole industry of producing fear, of manipulating fear for the sake also of economic interests and political interests. The fear of great replacement, for example. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So with the BDS becoming much more widespread, at least in political opinion, in the West, the definition of anti-Semitism has seemed to become the new front for uh, Zionist uh, propaganda. It's become urgent to define any criticism of Israel as equal to anti-Semitism. And there are efforts everywhere in the US and Europe to ban this form of dissent. You're absolutely right. Israel, in particular from 2010, when it realized that it doesn't win officially and diplomatically any moral discussion, they have no chance of winning the moral discussion. They went on the attack and weaponized anti-Semitism as the main tool to silence the debates on Palestine and suppress any fundamental criticism on Israel. They upgraded in 2020, by the way, this kind of uh, project by adding to it the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition. That, that is an interesting uh, project that was usurped by Israel in order to add to the accusation of anti-Semitism also the accusation of Holocaust denial. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance was actually quite a good project began by the Swedish government uh, in order to try and make sure that uh, students in high schools in Europe are aware of the Holocaust. And there's nothing wrong with that. Israel took over this project and added a definition of Holocaust denial that includes criticism on Israel. So this is used everywhere. I think one of the best uh, things that is happening, not enough, but is beginning to happen, that people who are being attacked, uh, either as individuals or as organizations, 
moved from the wrong reaction to my mind, which is defending themselves, saying, well, we are not, you're wrong, and I can show you that I'm not <laughs> an anti-Semite. In most cases, these were Jews who had to say we're not self-hating Jews. They understood that this was wrong. This is playing into the hands of those who determined the agenda. You want to put a different agenda. So you don't have to answer accusation of being anti-Semite. You have the other side to answer accusation of being apartheid, colonizing, oppressive state. And I think this, this is beginning to happen. And that's why the effectiveness of this attack that looked at first very effective and, you know, cost some people their academic uh, career on both sides of the Atlantic and so on. I think it's petering out in many ways because those who were the receiving end of this attack, in, instead of justifying themselves, said this is not the agenda. The agenda, if you want, the agenda is racism, not anti-Semitism, but racism, which includes anti-Semitism, which also includes Zionism. And I think this is where we are at, at least in the public domain. Will it be uh, reaching the, the policy making and so on? I don't know yet. This pink washing that we've mm-hmm. heard about for years, this pretense to really worry, it's a good thing to worry about the rights of all minorities, Absolutely. including sexual. But Israel has been using that as a fig leaf in its uh, mm-hmm. apartheid regime against Palestinians. That threatens to be dropped with the, <laughs> the arrival <laughs> yeah. of this, exactly. new, this new cabal, this definitely not woke <laughs> Cabal, <laughs> minister. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> How do you see this playing out? I mean, is this not going to be a problem for Israel? They used to drive a wedge between LGBT communities and, yeah. and pro-Palestinian communities. Well, as I said, this is part of fantasy Israel. We kill children in Gaza, but uh, we respect gay rights in Tel Aviv. So you can forgive us for the first because we're doing this great thing. In the second, uh, and that's not, you're right. This is would be very difficult to use it. I don't want to evade the, the questions. I'll give a short answer. I I think yes. You know, there's a shield of immunity that Israel has built, and the shield has all kinds of chunks in it, and some of them are falling. Some of them are falling, or, or it's a wall of immunity that begins to have serious cracks in it, and and that's one of the cracks. And it will have an effect. It will have an effect because it will be difficult to pinkwash, so to speak. But if I may, I, I would like to bring a different group into this discussion towards the end of our uh, conversation. And this is the high-tech elite in Israel. There are about 12,000 to 15,000 Israelis who pay almost 80% of the Israeli taxes. They annually bring $54 billion to Israel because of their the control of all their share in the international high-tech industry. Already some of them have left and moved only for business reasons, not ideological, moved their businesses out of Israel. And the rest are threatening to do the same. This is something to look at. Will the high-tech elite of Israel, that also enjoyed fantasy Israel, knowing better actually than Jews around the world, that this fantasy is not only not working, it is replaced by something that ruins their life, their public life. Will they leave Israel as they threaten? This, in my mind, would be a blow to Israel far stronger than the BDS, than anything we have seen so far. I'm not sure we only see the beginning of this, but this is something to watch. 
the demonstrations in Tel Aviv which crowded the Israeli flags and Palestinians felt, the thin citizens of Israel didn't feel, feel at all welcome in these demonstrations. And these demonstrations totally ignored the oppression of the Palestinians. There was the negative side of these, which happened every week now. More than 100,000 people every week in a country of uh, 8 or 9 million is a lot of people. That's a huge number. Even in America, in absolute numbers, a demonstration of 100,000 is a lot. The number of the high-tech people in this demonstration is very prominent, very large. So it would be interesting to follow this as well. Again, this has nothing to do with ideology. This has nothing to do with concern for the Palestinians. It is about an international elite in a world, a neo-capitalist world, that can easily move elsewhere. But when it moves, it takes the money with it. It takes the jobs with it. And I think this is something that Netanyahu did not calculate. He was really surprised by this. Uh, he's trying to do damage control. So far, he has not been very successful because he thought they would not be interested in, in legal reforms. But they told them, legal reform means that we are not protected as businesses. And neither are partners from abroad. So this is something to discuss and look at. Uh, it's too early to reach any dramatic conclusions, but I think this is something that is worth following. These high-tech innovators, these high-tech businesses are threatened by the new regime. In what yes, way? there is no solid legal system. Then you are not protected from the politicians as a businessman. I see. Intellectual rights and things like that. Also like taxes, pro- taxes, property properties, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This is something that they're not willing to. The Israeli legal system or the high court in Israel has done many, many bad things as far as the Palestinians are concerned. But if you put aside for a moment the Palestine question, in terms of protecting companies, industries, and so on, it is doing quite a good job. This is now taken away from the high court by the new government. And that means that they are alone vis-a-vis politicians that they don't respect and they they have options. And I think that they are very, very worried about the future in business terms. And already some of them have moved their activities outside of Israel. We know that already $1 billion have gone out of Israel. And the beaches of Miami Beach are just as lovely as those of, of Tel Aviv. Absolutely. And the, the <laughs> Silicon Valley would welcome them with open arms. Ilan Pape is the director of European Center of Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter. He's the author of many books on the Middle East and on the Palestine question, including the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
In summer of 2021, more than 500 journalists signed an open letter calling out harmful malpractice in U.S. media coverage of Palestine. The statement said, quote, Our news industry has abandoned those values in coverage of Israel and Palestine. We have failed our audiences with a narrative that obscures the most fundamental aspects of the story, Israel's military occupation and its system of apartheid, end of quote. The media coverage of the recent deadly attack on Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank and intensification of home demolitions and eviction of Palestinians from the occupied East Jerusalem once again shows the U.S. media's failure in contextualizing Israeli state violence. I spoke with Palestinian-American journalist and media analyst Laura Albast about the recent developments in Palestine and the U.S. media coverage of Israel-Palestine. The situation, as usual, has been very tense uh, in Palestine because the Israeli occupation has been cracking down on Palestinians in the West Bank and Jerusalem for many, many days before the news that we've heard about Janine, whether it was through arbitrary arrests, uh, home demolitions, raids, the largest expulsion of Palestinians since 1967 in the eight villages of Masafariyata, there has been a lot going on and a lot of death has happened. A lot of Palestinians have been killed. So on January 26, Israeli occupation forces entered the Janine refugee camp in an illegal raid and killed nine Palestinians, including two children and one elderly woman. It was the bloodiest massacre, a deadly raid, the bloodiest since 2002, since the Second Intifada. This is not the first time the Israeli occupation has raided Janine. They have been continuously doing it over the past few months, over the past few years. And we've even heard of the killing of Shirin Abu Aqli uh, last May. This is not the first time. This is not the last time. But not enough media coverage has reached this. One article here and there. But when did the media coverage explode on the Janine refugee camp on the raid? After Palestinians pushed back, when your land is stolen, when you are being subjugated to a 75-year occupation, you are being arrested, your homes are being demolished, your children's schools are being demolished and raided, your children are being arrested, you are continuously being pushed and pushed and pushed and suffocated, it is natural to fight back. It is natural to push back. Once Palestinians pushed back because of this massacre, because of this loss of Palestinian lives, media coverage exploded, framing Palestinians as militants, gunmen, terrorists, a surge in violence that appeared out of nowhere, an escalation. The use of this language in these media, uh, in these media organizations, in these newspapers, aims to frame a certain image of what a Palestinian is to a Western reader or a Western viewer or a Western listener. That is the power that the media holds. They frame an image of a land far, far away where only violence exists. Well, in the United States, how many shootings do we have on a daily basis, whether it's in schools, whether, whether it's gang shootings, whether a few days ago, a metro shooting in Washington, D.C.? 
But the U.S. is not framed by the shootings that occur. It is not called a violent country because of all the shootings that come about. So why is it that Palestine is framed as an area of violence, or as the New York Times called it in a recent article, a region that has known, never known any calm? I should mention that according to Al Jazeera, Israeli undercover forces dressed as civilians entered the camp in private vehicles with Palestinian plate numbers. This is according to surveillance videos. And shortly after, they were backed up by dozens of soldiers who snuck into the camp in a large Palestinian dairy company truck. That is correct. They entered and targeted an apartment building. They launched rockets and explosives at the building. And once that occurred and there was panic, they caused terror in the refugee camp. Palestinian men were trying to push them back. They were trying to fight back to stop the killing of, of their families and of their friends. And that's when tens and tens of soldiers entered the camp, destroying everything in their wake, killing anyone that shows up, including an elderly woman who was just opening the window to see what happened, what is going on, and was hit by an Israeli bullet. Uh, so far this year, Israeli occupation forces have killed 35 Palestinians. Last year, more than 9,000 Palestinians were injured, according to the UN. And according to news website Mundawais, and other reports, 230 Palestinians were killed by Israel, most of them in the West Bank. You briefly spoke about the media coverage. What else stands out for you specifically in the way that major media outlets have framed the recent atrocities in the West Bank, and especially the ongoing policy of expulsion of Palestinians from their homes in the occupied East Jerusalem. So there is a common recurrent theme in coverage of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. It is the same pattern of omission, the same pattern of linguistic use that frames, that dehumanizes Palestinians. So in this specific case, when media coverage was referring to Janine, they were referring to the refugee camp as a flashpoint camp, as a place of terror where militants live. This is a refugee camp. So that alone should tell you that there's something behind the story. Why is it a refugee camp? Where did these people come from? These Palestinians were expelled from their cities on the coast. They were expelled from cities and villages that are now occupied by Israel. And they came to Janine and formed a refugee camp. The omission that exists as well, and I've seen a slight shift in it, is that Palestinian voices are almost non-existent in this coverage. They're it's hardly always, quoted. Exactly. They're hardly, they're, quoted. They're hardly quoted. And if they are quoted, there's no names. It's sort of a use like, oh, the Palestinian Ministry of Health said this. It's sort of a pacifier to readers like us who actually care about the truth to sort of say, hey, we, we quoted this, you know, Palestinian official, so we're going to move on with our coverage. But when you look at the majority of media coverage, they're always quoting officials from uh, Israeli institutions, from the Israeli military, from the American State Department, and all these quotes go often unchallenged. Now, that's not journalism, that's PR. When you quote something, it is untrue, or it is omitting fact, and you do not follow up and challenge it, or explain, or give context, 
that is no longer journalism. What's interesting in a recent New York Times article specifically, and I talk about the New York Times because as a reader, you have to look beyond what the story is, but rather who writes the story and why a story is being written a certain way. There is an agenda. The New York Times board of directors almost all have financial ties in Israel, whether it's with companies, tech companies or TV companies. So there is an interest to pleasing the Israeli officials in coverage. So a recent New York Times article was writing about the incident in Jerusalem. And what they said was, this occurred after a series of, quote, lone wolf operations by Palestinians against Israelis. That is a very interesting way to frame that. They chose to give that line to explain the incident that occurred in Jerusalem, but did not choose to say that Palestine has been occupied for 75 years, that 35 people have been killed since the beginning of 2023, that 2022 was the deadliest year in Palestine. The Israeli right wing have been marching in the streets and calling death to the Arabs. They chose not to mention that. So it tells you something. It tells you that they choose to give a certain context, a context that benefits their agenda when it benefits the New York Times and its board of directors and its target audience. But when it comes to giving context for readers like us, it's more of a pacifier. Hey, we quoted three Palestinian officials, so please don't criticize us anymore. Adding to what you just said, there was an article, recent article in the Washington Post about the deadly raid on Janine refugee camp. And without any hesitation, the reporters were very comfortable repeating statements by Israeli officials as facts. But when it came to quoting the, the health minister in the West Bank, my Aikaila, who said, the situation in Jenin camp is very critical. And she accused Israeli forces of preventing ambulances from reaching the injured and, quote, deliberately firing tear gas as pediatric ward of a hospital, which has been confirmed and corroborated by other witnesses. But it's very interesting that the Post, right after this paragraph, said the Post could not independently confirm her claims, and Israel had no immediate comment. Wow. And there is another example which I found in The Guardian which was a very, very short sentence. And it said, after an IDF raid in the West Bank that killed nine and the massacre of seven Israelis by a Palestinian gunman in the occupied East Jerusalem the next day. Those are great examples about the framing and language used when describing Israeli deaths versus Palestinian death and presenting facts that are unverified. So they may have ethically, quote unquote, ethically, uh, the Washington Post saved themselves by saying that they couldn't verify these claims. But why did they print these claims? In communications in general, everybody knows once you say something, it sticks. That's what people think about. So why did you say it? Why did they write it? Laura Albast is a Palestinian-American journalist and the senior editor of Digital Strategy and Communications at the Institute for Palestine Studies in Washington, D.C. From Pacifica Radio, 
This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.